Good morning. I hope you're. I hope you're doing all right. Uh, one of the things that, I, that as their second meeting, one of the things I, I need to do is always thank people who've, who've helped out and, and helped kind of put this stuff together. And so there's a number of people who, from the beginning, were were involved in this church kind of coming together. And so there's people. Uh, Hannah Blake now Maginot was was one of our original people that that came and helped put put this church together. Anna Carter. And then also um, Mark and Sid, Sid Stanica are also part of this group. And so if you ever see them or if you find out who they are or if we mention them by name, that's who they are. They help get grace and peace off the ground. There's also people such as uh, Andrew Bostrom who's been, who's been helping us with, with a bunch of things. Uh, the Kuiper family behind the scenes have been helping us uh, do things like setup. So be sure to thank them. But as we continue in the book of John, we've been covering seven signs that point to the reality that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then we're also going to be looking at the seven I Am statements from the book of John. And what we will uh, uh, end up finding out that one of the things about the gospel is that it is offensive. And so I am going to warn you now. You will be offended by what I say. If not now, some other time, it's going to happen. All right? Um, here, and, and here's the thing. If I'm not offending you in some way, your sensibilities, or, or I, I'm not pushing in on you a little bit, it's probably because I'm not preaching the gospel. Uh, because the gospel is going to affirm and critique every culture and every person. Unless you're Jesus, and I don't think anyone's going to confess that they're Jesus. In fact, John opens up his Bible, uh, opens up uh, the book of John, and tells about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's confession in John one twenty is this, and it's my life verse. He confessed and did not deny that I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ, and so I spend most of my life realizing through my sin and my failure that I'm not the Christ. And I also remember that other people are not the Christ for me either. And I think that's a big deal. And so what it reveals is that, that the gospel, the good news, is an affront to any kind of idolatry, which is worshiping anything more than God, worshiping anything more than Jesus. And we're all idol worshipers in one form or another. And this really came to the fore, especially for me, in realizing about Christianity on November 8th, a Tuesday night in 2016. I will not forget sitting in my basement as I saw uh, what, what will be a day that a religious scholars will pay careful attention to. Why? Because to my amazement, I saw state after state go in the opposite direction that was predicted, and Donald Trump defied all expectations and won. But what was interesting to, to religious scholars was the reactions. They calculated and figured out that the evangelical vote, uh, something like 80% went to Trump. 80%. And in response, many people who identify as Christian uh, uh, and, and do not agree with Trump took to social media. They decried the vote as, for Trump as completely unchristian. Still others, they cheered the vote and said, this is great. So much so to the point I was once in church standing there talking to someone and the response to the person next to me said, uh, uh, she said, well, isn't it great that a man of God is in the White House was her response. And I, 
And I go, I wouldn't even say that about myself half the time. And, and so, so I just couldn't say anything, so I just got up and left. Like, and so that was, that was my reaction. And numerous people then got onto social media, some of my friends, my dear friends who'd been walking with the Lord, and they say they were no longer going to continue to associate with Christian churches where the majority of the congregation voted for Trump. Others who don't identify as religious have sworn off anything that looks like Christianity because of that association. They basically say, if that's what Christianity looks like, I want no part of it. If that's what you are about, I want no part of it. And this then ended up starting this wave. If you go onto social media and you search the hashtag exevangelical or hashtag empty the pews, this is a lot of where it started. And let me say this. If since 2016 or even before that you've been hurt by the church and church people, if you've been excluded because you didn't measure up to some standard other than Jesus, then I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, that you have... You, you, that, that has come upon you. You see, the, Christ, the confession of Christianity is that none of us measure up. None of us measure up on our own. And religion will say, hey, you need to be good like I am good. And irreligion will say, there is no good. But only Christianity says, only Jesus is good for you. Only Christianity says that. And so what is wrong with the world? What is, what is wrong with, with Christianity today? What is wrong with churches today? G.K. Chesterton, uh, answering an op-ed to the question, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton said this, real short, Dear Sir, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And so, I think what the temple is showing us, and this clearing of the temple, it shows us that there are deep-seated idolatries in our heart. And in, doing, in having those, it creates a barrier to worship for many people and has enabled many people to check out of church. And this goes for those who are on the left and the right. It's for bo both people have an idolatry about politics or about social justice or an idolatry about uh, their theology that becomes a barrier to other people coming close to Jesus. You know, it's comforting and soothing to think that evil, though, is out there, and all the bad people are out there. But as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, including our own. And so basing your virtue or your standing or your ability to be in worship on anything other than God will inevitably exclude others who are not like you. People who are not in your tribe. And what the election revealed is that we are filled, we have filled Christianity. And we filled our lives with barriers for people. So that they cannot worship. You see, that's what it showed. And this goes for those on the left and the right. You see, leveraging Christianity to want to your one political party is inviting the traders and the buyers and the sellers into the temple. 
Tribalism and political tribalism creates false temples, erects false barriers to the worship of the one true God. Whenever we base our value or validity on, whatever we identify most with, that's our temple. That's where we find meaning. And what we see is Jesus is coming to clean house. Jesus is coming to clean house. And he does this, and he says that he, and and so the main point of our text is that Jesus is the true temple. He's the true meeting place of God with man. He's the true place where we are to worship. It is the true place where we're going to actually see God in the flesh. And so uh, what temples were, and if you think about the setting of this place at this point, if Jesus is the true temple, he shows up at this temple, and the temple at this time was probably began its construction under Zerubbabel in B.C. 19 or 18, right in that area, because it says it takes 46 years. You give it a few here and there is, is uh, where, where they reckon that it was beginning to be built. And it was during the Passover feast, and so during the Passover feast there was a pilgrimage, so a lot of people would start coming into Jerusalem. People who maybe have never, uh, would, would never usually come, they came. And even nationals and people from other, other countries would come to see what was going on. Uh, think about it this way. I would never go to New Orleans, but the only time I would ever want to go is Mardi Gras. I don't know why, but I'm just drawn. And so there's this religious worship, and people would want to go during that time. Or if you're a boxing fan, the only time I would ever want to go to Las Vegas is to see Manny Pacquiao, okay? I'm Filipino. I love Manny Pacquiao. And so I would want to go see that. It would be like a pilgrimage for me. All right? And so that's what would happen. People would show up. And at the time, uh, Jesus shows up into the temple vicinity, it says. So he didn't even go into the temple proper. So he was on the ground, and he finds people selling animals, which it doesn't sound bad. I mean, if you're traveling from, like, a Galilee, you know, wander down there for your pilgrimage, you need to make sacrifice in order that you can be clean and cleansed from your sin. So you don't want to bring your animal all the way from Galilee. That's a long journey. So what do you do? You buy your animal there, and then it can be sacrificed. The the same was true also for money changers. They had this temple tax. Jesus finds these money changers there, and so they had to put it into a particular type of silver so that they could pay the temple tax. And so he finds them in this place. But here's the rub. Where are they? They're in a vicinity of the temple that was known as the court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles is a word for the nations, people who are not Jews. This was the place where where Gentiles could come to and worship God and see what was going on in the temple and realize that's God. They were to come to this point. Because at that time, the cleansing had not happened, the true sacrifice had not happened, and worship had not been opened all all the way through. Paul would say later, though, the dividing of wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile was torn down in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And so in salvation history, it was opened up. It wasn't opened up at this time. But, here's the deal. Their love for money, their love to make a quick buck, became convenient to keep other people out. It kept the nations out. 
they filled this entire court with animals and with money changers. And how does Jesus react? Well, he's not stoic about it. They're blocking worship. They're blocking the worship of the one true God. This temple, which was the religious center of the people, which was to be their source, of nas- the, their source of identity, has then been filled in order to keep others out. If you think about it, the identity of Jesus' people in the Old Testament was that they were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a blessing to the nations. They were to show, they were to be God's display of his goodness, kindness, mercy, and grace on display. And then suddenly at the temple, the center of everything that they are, they said... Uh, nah, you guys stay out. You're not welcome. That's harsh. You know, here's the deal. A lot of people see what was going on at the temple. They're like, "Mm, I've seen that many times in Christianity. And you want to know something? Grace and peace is not the perfect community. Now, we're sinners in need of forgiveness. I will offend you. I will hurt you. Because I'm a sinner too. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if you ever find the perfect Christian community, don't join it. You will ruin it. (laughs) Don't join it. You will ruin it. You see, maybe you've been hurt by the church or churches, and I am sorry. But don't let cynicism and bitterness overcome you. Don't let it just simmer so that you're always looking for a conspiracy that doesn't exist. Don't let it have the power over you to say, those people hurt me. Jesus isn't sitting there at the door either for you and sitting recounting all your sins and shaking his finger and waiting for you to mess up. Rather, he wears the scars of all of our sins and says, come and see. Taste and see that Jesus, that I am good, he says. So Jesus is the true temple, and he does two things. Jesus cleanses, and Jesus replaces. Jesus cleanses, and Jesus replaces. So the temple was a place where sacrifice would happen. It was a place where, by faith, sacrifice was offered. So an animal would die in your stead, and that animal, by faith, the... Would be it, it would replace you. It would substitute for you and you would be cleansed from your sin. And it was God's appointed means at the time to distinguish his people from others. And Jesus cleanses the temple by doing three things. He identifies the corruption. He exposes the corruption. And then he drives out the corruption. So he identifies the corruption. Uh, Jesus does, does this in two places in our text. One, it says that they were trading, making money. And then, and later, it is exposed whenever he's talking to them. And they say, who the heck are you to cleanse our temple? And he says, you know, you want a sign? Destroy this temple and I'll build it up in three days. And their next response is, are you kidding me? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Who do you think you are? And he says, mm, maybe you love this temple a little too. That's his response. And so the two things is that they were trading and making money. So what, is the ident- what does he identify as their corruption? Their love of making money. Love of making a quick buck. And then two was the love of nationalistic pride. The temple was their identity because there, as long as they had the temple, God was going to come back and vindicate everybody who was worshiping at the temple. 
everyone who was pietistic, everyone who was part of the nation of Israel, they were going to be okay. And Jesus says, mm, you presume too much. Notice he sees that something is wrong. Would you, it says, would you make my father's house a house of trade, he says. Uh, in the other Gospels, in Mark especially, he says, would you make my house a den of robbers, quoting Jeremiah. And he's saying, what are you guys doing? Next, check out, he identifies uh, this, this, the infatuation of the temple. They, they're like, what sign do you have for this authority to drive out money changers and sellers? And he says, you know what? Check it out. Destroy this temple. They're like, why would you want to destroy this temple? You're crazy. So much so that whenever he's put on trial, they're like, do you know what he said? He said that he was going to destroy this temple. Crucify him. Execute him. That's how much they loved it. You see, they're, the Sanhedrin, the rulers at the time, they make reference to this claim because they love the temple more than they love God himself. In fact, they thought it was going to leverage God. And so, what they did, in order to keep nationalistic purity, it was advantageous. Let's put the money changers, and let's put uh, the... the um, the, the cattle and everything that needed to be sacrificed in this temple or in the, where the nations would come, where the Gentiles would come, in order to keep them out, and that way we could be pure. And when God came back, he would see how pure we are and how great we are, and he'd vindicate us. And how do we do this to Jesus today? Ask yourself this question. How would Jesus identify the corruption in our heart? I think he'd ask this question. Who's welcome at your churches? Someone with a confederate flag on their car? Someone with a pride flag? Someone with a, uh, um, a coexist sticker on their vehicle? How about a MAGA hat? Are they allowed in? Someone with a Black Lives Matter shirt? Are they allowed in? Who are you going to strategically keep out, was the question. Who are you keeping out? And Jesus says, you're keeping out the nations. You can safely assume, Anne Lamott says, that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. You've made a God in your own image. Say that again. You could safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. So in it, Jesus exposes these preferences. It shows that they were valuing something other, something other than God himself to exclude others, the nations, from worship. Don't get me wrong. Jesus loves you absolutely right where you are. But he loves you enough not to leave you where you are. He will change you, but he loves you. And so one, he identifies the corruption. Two, he exposes the corruption. He shows that it would fall short. By driving out and putting a halt to sacrifice to that day and making a, just, just crushing their economy for their day, uh, Israel's economy was primarily driven, ready for this, on sacrifice, on worship. And so he exposes where they're falling short. So he, said, he does it by ending worship for the day. And he says, obviously, you don't need it as much. There's something wrong. It's corrupt worship. 
And he says, what the signs of sacrifice is pointing to is me. And so he shows up. And then he says, I'm the true temple. The next thing is, is he says that this temple structure is not that important. Why? Because he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. You've got things mixed up. And so what this exposes for us is identifying in anything other than Jesus. Building your identity on your political affiliation or who you voted for. One, is not nearly as important as who you who you worship and who you find yourself in and who you identify most in. And that should be Jesus. Then the last thing is, is he here, he drives out the corruption. It says that his, his disciples remembered that, that, that this little quote, zeal for his house shall consume him. And zeal, this is a real particular word here, zeal was also associated with a group of people called the zealots. If you remember, there's this guy hanging out with Jesus named Simon the Zealot, right? And so who are these zealots? Zealots were people who would hang out, and there were revolutionaries that were like, they wanted to get rid of Rome, and they needed purity, and they rejected the temple. But the best way that we were going to get back at these Roman people and be free is that we're going to hide out by the side of the road. We're going to wait for a revolution to happen. And then uh, whenever Romans would come in, we'd get up there, waylay them, and that's how we're going to keep purity. And so do you know what every, every person is probably saying at this point? When they see Jesus being, you know, throwing people out of the temple, they're like, the revolution has come. He's finally thrown out these corrupt Sanhedrin. Finally, someone we can get on board with. And then the Pharisees at the same time, if you think about the Pharisees, Pharisees were hanging out in this synagogue worship, and they wanted to keep purity by keeping the law. It wasn't so much about temple, it was keeping the law. And so at the same time, the Pharisees are probably saying, Ah, that's our guy. Look at it. He's cleaning out the Sanhedrin, that corrupt temple. And then suddenly, what does he do? Jesus drives him out, but he doesn't start a revolution. Nor does he say anything uh, flattering to the, to the Pharisees, because later he will look at the Pharisees, square the eye, and say, You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. You are children of your father, Satan. I don't, I don't know if you guys can read between the lines. That's not flattering. Okay? You see, they're trying to leverage Jesus, and Jesus suddenly is saying, no, I'm going to clean out, and I'm going to drive out this corruption. See, Jesus' concern was for true worship. And he says in the other Gospels, he says that his house, his father's house, shall be a house of prayer for all nations, quoting Isaiah 56. For all nations, all peoples. And then the next thing we see is that Jesus, when he drives out this corruption, he does it by a righteous anger. And he's angry about the right things. He's angry for God's glory. He's angry for God's glory. Not for some political, uh, for, for some sort of political uh, um, agenda that he has. No. He wants God's glory. And so he drives them out because he wants people to see what is true and what is good. He wants them to see it. And notice, uh, I think we have this weird image about Jesus too. We always think about Jesus as kind of like stoic. And so I can imagine uh, when I was a kid, like hearing about this Jesus driving out the temple, I have this idea. It was like, you know, he's like straight faced, kind of chill about it. And he's like, get out. <laughs> 
And then it says he turns over tables. Okay, these are not like little plastic tables when he throws it over. Okay? He's throwing big wooden tables over, which means, that, you know, it's on the border of rage. You, know, you ever seen some part in like homeboys doing roids? It's almost like that, okay? He's, he's pretty angry, but he's angry about the right things. And when Jesus comes to drive out and he identifies and exposes the corruption in your heart, he's going to drive it out and he does so because he's angry. Why? It's like he's jealous. And here's the thing. We would never say a husband is a good husband if he sees his wife being hit on by someone else and he is not angry. If I'm over at Cork and Cask and someone is hitting on Holly and I come over and like, hey... Can you stop that? No. Okay? A good husband is going to say, What's wrong with you? Get out of here. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's jealous for his people. He loves them. And he says, this is destroying you. And he does that in, in all of our hearts. There are so many things that are destroying us. Our sin is destroying us. But it is not God coming in to destroy you. No. Christianity teaches that it is you and God together destroying the sin that will destroy you ultimately if you don't get rid of it. And so God comes in and he replaces it. And if we think about this here with the story of Passover, Jesus is saying, look, remember the Exodus? Remember when you had to take, take that one Passover lamb and kill it? And that would cleanse you and cover you up. The same is happening now. And that Jesus, when he shows up, that the true cleansing is the cleansing of the heart that Jesus Christ can only give when he dies on the cross for you. And his blood covers you. So Jesus dies for you. But Jesus also replaces this temple. The temple is starting to be alluded to all the way back in the book of Genesis in Eden. Eden was this garden that was also a temple. It was the place where God dwelt with his people. And they were, by building culture, into building structures, they were to make this garden expand so that God could dwell everywhere and his people would dwell everywhere. And so the earth was to be a temple to the Lord. And we see that come in full in the end when a city without a temple comes down. And it is said in the book of Revelation that the dwelling place of God is now with man. And that the earth would be full of the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas, what it says in Isaiah. And that's what's going to happen and so how in the world are they going to get there from this little place? Jesus has to replace the temple. And temple wasn't just where they worshipped, it's what they worshipped. It was their source of national identity. It made them stand out. It was their political program. They believed God owed them. And as long as they voted right, as long as they did the right thing, God was going to vindicate them. And whenever Jesus cleans it out, many read this as a rejection of the temple, and it is. And so Pharisees are like, ah, finally, but he, he gets back at them. And you see, this is the thing. Whatever you worship most, whatever you love most is your temple. So Jesus, what he says, is, I've got to do idol replacement on these people. Jesus seeks to replace their source of identity. What they loved most. And the only way you can get rid of an old love is to get a new love that supersedes it. 
the old Puritan Thomas Chalmers wrote in The Expulsive Power of the New Affection that the only one thing uh, can change your affections, can change your heart, and that is the expulsive power of the new affection. When something so enraptures your heart, or someone so enraptures your heart, it has the power to change you. See, at this time, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it. Their response is, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Who in the world are you? This is where we meet with God. Don't you know that? What's wrong with you? And Jesus says, you know what? You know what? The only place where you can meet with God is with me. And you've got to love me. And so we see later after he had died and that he fulfilled the scriptures, that he rose again in three days, that he was absolutely talking about the temple of his body, John writes. And so he says, I am the replacement of the temple. And so we need to ask ourselves, where do we find our identity? Where do we build up all our hope? What do we revel in? What do we think is most important? And Jesus then says, he throws down the gauntlet and says, it took you 10 years to build your social media at reputation. Like, in me, I was completely destroyed and risen again in glory. What has your social media reputation got? It's taken you 40 years to build your career so you can retire, and all your hope is in that. No way. No way. It's got nothing on Jesus. See, Jesus is the true temple. He's the true meeting place of God with man. If you place yourself in faith in Christ, then anything in your life can be destroyed because you have an identity that's surpassing and stronger and more beautiful in Christ. You are a new creation. You are a new creation. And Jesus dwells with you. Do you know what's the greatest worship song I've ever listened, worship album I've ever listened to? It's actually by a non-Christian. It's actually by a non-Christian. It's 33 minutes long and it's a jazz. It's by John Coltrane. And after a number of years of struggling mightily with drugs and alcohol, he admitted that he was an addict and he calls out, apparently, at one time to a higher power. He says, save me. Save me. Make me new. And he's released from his addiction by gracious love of this higher power. And it is said that John wrote what is considered the best, the, the most powerful jazz music ever heard, and it's called A Love Supreme. It is a suite in four parts. It's the acknowledgement that he needs help that he has built his identity elsewhere. And then there's this, uh, the resolution, pursuance, and psalm. And Coltrane plays tenor saxophone on all four parts, and one critic had written that the album was intended to represent a struggle for purity and an expression of gratitude and an acknowledgement that the musician's talent comes from a higher power. His identity would be built on a higher power. But he didn't know the substance of it. And Jesus Christ comes in and says, I am your higher power. Find your life. 
your identity in me. And it will break down all barriers. Find your life in the love supreme. And you'll make 33 minutes of the greatest music of all time. It will be worship. All of your life will be worship. And that will no longer be a barrier for those outside. That they will come in and see your life and what you do and how you work and everything you do. And they will no longer just see, just see you doing the work. They will see the glory of God. And so Jesus, you see, he was destroyed. You find your identity in him and you'll see on the cross that his body was torn apart and he was destroyed and he laid in the ground for three days. But on the third day, he rose again in newness of life. And what that means is you can have new life too. And what does it mean? It looks like work and everything lives under this new creation. And we build toward this new creation, looking forward to the city without a temple, because God himself will walk amongst us. Let us pray. Mighty and gracious God, as we come to the Lord's Supper today, help us to remember your gracious love, your love supreme in Jesus Christ, torn apart, broken for us. Lord, help us to know his blood poured out for us. Help us to identify and build our identity in that. Help us to love Jesus more than anything. Help us to be transformed, to be more like him, so that everything we do, all our work, all our time and labors here on this earth would be for your glory. And so that others would see it, outsiders, people who don't, who maybe have doubts, people who've been hurt by the church, that they'll look and say, there truly is a God. Lord, forgive us for the places where we fall short, where we hurt others and outsiders. Lord, come in. Cleanse us. Identify the corruption in our hearts. Expose the corruption. Drive it out, Lord. Help us to trust you as the true sacrifice. Help us to look upon you. Lord, transform our hearts. Lord, help us to rejoice now as we partake of your Lord's Supper that you are the one who was broken for us so that we may be whole in you. Help us to rejoice and feast. Help us to find our identity in you alone and what you have done for us. Pray, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.